All right, let's come back together and get to our seats in here and in the gym. And for those of you viewing online, welcome. We want to thank all of those who shopped at our fireworks stand. This was the easily the most lucrative weekend we have had since 2007. Um, and so that's great for, yeah, thank you. It's fantastic for our young people. All the proceeds go to help them go to camps and retreats. And so uh, parents of youth are also very excited about that news. And it only filled up the back of my van. So it's, we didn't have very much left. So that's really, really great news. Hope you had a, a good fourth. And we are back in the book of Second Thessalonians. So if you can turn in your Bible or your app to Second Thessalonians. I apologize to those of you that use the version notes. I completely forgot to put those in there. But here's this crazy thing called paper that we print out every week that I'll have to do for this week. And I believe it's also in PDF format, the sermon notes on the website. So those are available there. There is a story of two men looking to uh, build their house and find a good place to locate it in um, the region that they lived. Um, It was a very difficult place, and so they had to find the key location to build their home. One of the men decided that though it would cost him much more, he would build it on a rock, on a solid foundation. Some of you are are figuring out my story here that this is not original. The other man, looking for the cheaper, easier way, built it in the valley on the sand because it didn't require hauling all of the materials up and down the rock. The problem was it was summer, and when the rainy season came, the rains came down and the floods went up, and the house on the sand went splat. But in that same rainy and stormy season, the house on the rock stood firm. Yes, that's, uh, that's the song that, uh, that many of us learned as young people. It's also straight from Matthew chapter 7 in um, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And the reason I bring that up today is because what Jesus points out with that little story, that little parable, is not that one of the men heard the truth and the other didn't. But the point is they both heard And only one acted on it. And that is what we want to keep in mind today. Because in this passage, we come to it with understandable curiosity. We come to it with baggage of whatever kind from your upbringing, from prophecy conferences, from the denomination that you grew up in, from the home that you grew up in. We come with curiosity, and we should come with curiosity. We should come to God's Word with curiosity every time. But we dare not leave this passage just fulfilling our curiosity. We shouldn't leave this passage without the pastoral comfort and reassurance that Paul meant it to give. So we must come away today not merely with a a more clearly filled out chart in our head of the end times. We certainly don't want to come out of today with better arguments to own those people that have other views. Um, We come to today's passage with open hands, 
ready to learn and ready to know that there are different views on how to accept several things in this passage. I don't say that to excuse my clarity or precision today. I just want to bring that up at the beginning that many of you came from, well, we have lots of different backgrounds here. And so I want us to to come here knowing that we are not battling, we're not duking out um, first order essential doctrines today. We are talking about um, secondary, maybe even tertiary doctrines that are very important. The problem that we have today is that oftentimes what's not important is unimportant. And what I want to say is we need to have the nuance to be able to prioritize from most important to less important, not unimportant. Do you see the difference? Okay, we do this all the time in our lives. We have to prioritize not just the good and the bad or or the important and the unimportant, but we have to prioritize things that sometimes we're not sure where they rank and we have to figure out where to put those. Today's passage is one of those passages. We have all kinds of fun stuff in here, things we'd love to know, things that sometimes we overly want to know, sometimes things that many people have claimed to know and fallen along the wayside. In fact, the author of that last hymn was pretty sure he knew who this person was, and he's been dead for almost 450 years. So we stand on the shoulders of many who have gone before, and they're not necessarily giants because this is a tough passage. So I want to read it. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 is what we'll be covering today. I want to read it in its entirety, pray, and then we will dive right in. Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica in the first century A.D. these words. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Father, we are coming to this passage maybe in, in order to work out some kind of code or maybe to to uh, have more knowledge about the end times. Lord, we, may we not... Merely come to this passage and learn. May we be dazzled. And may we be dazzled by you. That you have chosen to reveal yourself to humans. That you have deigned to come to us and to lisp along in our language. Lord, that you have loved us enough to send your only son. And you did not hold the knife back like you had Abraham do. You 
allowed the wrath that you have against sin to fall upon him so that it may never fall upon those who believe. We thank you, Lord, for this. We tremble at the certainty of judgment and the certainty of the end. Um, Lord, we, we feel it maybe more in this year, um, just all the things that are happening and, and the things that have, have come about, Lord, and we are sometimes tempted to be shaken from our confidence. Lord, I pray for those who are doubting that we would, that we would, not, um, that we would not pound them or shame them, but that, Lord, that we would um, compassionately come alongside and point back to the Scriptures, the trustworthy Word of God that gives us the only sure confidence and hope in these times and in any times. So God, guide us in your Word today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I, I titled today's sermon Unshakable to the End, and the, the shaken picture is taken straight from the first couple of verses of our passage because there was a temptation for the Thessalonians to be shaken out of what Paul had taught them. If you'll remember, in this series we have covered First Thessalonians, and now we are a few times into Second Thessalonians. Last week, Pastor AJ talked to us about Jesus' revelation from heaven and the judgment that he will bring upon those who are opposed to him. We get a little bit more of that today, but specifically, Paul must have been responding to an issue that he heard. Perhaps Timothy, when he returned from delivering 1 Thessalonians, brought back these questions, perhaps the other ways that, that Paul heard about what was going on in the church. But we know, based on Paul's wording, that he was dealing with a specific issue. The problem is, again, that we say this all the time, but when we're reading a letter from Paul or Peter or James, we don't necessarily have very much of what they received. We only have his side to go on. And this passage is incredibly uh, like that because we're just not exactly sure what the Thessalonian believers were dealing with or thinking. We have to piece it together from what Paul is saying. It's like hearing one side of a telephone conversation. You can probably get the gist of what's happening on the other end, um, but sometimes it's more clear and sometimes it's less Clear. This is what we have to deal with here. But above and beyond the details here, who's the son of destruction? Who's the man of lawlessness? How do we figure out the codes? There are no codes, folks. There's no codes here. There's just words, okay? They're words from God that we have. And when we're trying to figure out all of these things, let us not forget why Paul is writing. The reason he writes this is to comfort them and help the believers with clarity so that they might live their lives not worried about something that was supposedly happening, but knowing that they could trust in the true word of God. The Thessalonians had had Paul there to plant the first church there. Paul was ripped away. He could not complete his teaching to them, and so that contributes to some of their misunderstandings. But we come to this passage wanting to know more and wanting to know how we can go from this place today in more confidence so that we are not shaken. And the, the picture of being shaken is uh, particularly important for those of us living in California because we have earthquakes and we um, are more or less used to those kinds of things. But there is the constant threat of undermining a foundation, right, of shaking the walls. And so we want to consider the walls of our lives, of our theology, of our understanding so that we will not be shaken. Paul speaks in the first two verses to the Thessalonians. And the point is to keep calm and consider your sources about the end. To keep calm and consider your sources about the end. If someone wants to make a shirt like that, that would be pretty cool. But we want to make sure that we are able 
to keep calm and to consider our sources. So this is really important um, because Paul references in this passage that there were other sources feeding into their understanding of the end times. And so we need to be careful what we allow into our minds as we're reading, listening, hearing, watching um, different ideas. Um, some of you who were around in 1988 may remember the, the book 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 1988. No joke, the, the gentleman wrote a book the next year. You, can you guess his title? Do you think he sold more or less in the second year? Okay. Listen, we're not going anywhere near there, okay? Because we actually believe Jesus when he says that we don't need to know the times. We need to know some details and we need to know what God has given to us. Beyond that we is arrogance and pride. We come to the word humbly, submitting ourselves to God's word. And so the topic is the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him. Now that phrase goes back to 1 Thessalonians, the end of chapter 4, the beginning of chapter 5, which we covered a few weeks ago, and you can check out on the podcast or on the website. Paul's already dealt with this issue, but it seems that even before the letter that he wrote to the Thessalonians got there, that perhaps there was more false teaching, more misunderstanding. And so when Timothy came back, we assume, or or a letter was written, uh, that there was even more confusion. And so Paul goes back to this again. We believe, we sang this morning, that Jesus Christ is coming again. All Christians throughout history have believed that Jesus Christ is coming again. We differ on many of the details therein, but we all agree that Jesus is coming back and we look forward to that day when he bodily comes and restores order to his universe. There's an and. So the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and are being gathered together to him. It is that being gathered together to him, that being with Jesus, that seemed to bother the Thessalonians the most. Back in 1 Thessalonians, it seemed that some people who initially believed when Paul had come died after Paul left. And so they they knew in their heads what Paul had taught. But when the rubber meets the road and someone actually dies and you are living in a Greco-Roman pagan uh, world where you grew up believing very different things about life, the afterlife, there was confusion. There was... There was fear. What happened to so-and-so? We put their body in the ground, and now we don't know how to put together what Paul taught us. It also may not have helped that Paul had to leave that church fairly soon and not stick around for long enough to explain these things to the believers. It seems that there was a false teaching because in verse 2, Paul says, Don't be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. Um, This is very similar to the most frequent command in the Bible, which is fear not. Don't fear. Don't be shaken. Don't be alarmed. Don't be scared. By what? By three things. Either by a spirit, that could also be translated the spirit, probably meaning someone who claimed to have a revelation. Um, Probably not a demon, because we're not thinking that many of these people would have said, oh, there's a demon here, and we're just going to listen to the demons teach on the end times over Paul's. Okay, but the, the point is that um, a spirit might be the Holy Spirit supposedly speaking through someone, and Paul taught, and he'll teach later on in Second Thessalonians, to test the spirits, to make sure that you do test prophecies. It could have come through a, a, a revelation, a so-called revelation through someone. 
It could have come um, by a spoken word. And so this is separated by that by just maybe more like someone who is teaching, who does not claim to have had a revelation or a dream or a vision, but someone who is claiming, no, I disagree with Paul's teaching and here is what my teaching presents. So don't listen to um, uh, someone who is supposedly speaking through the Spirit if it differs with what Paul said. Don't listen to a spoken word, a presentation, a lecture, um, an oratorical remark. Don't listen to those things. And then third, don't listen to a letter, an epistle, And Paul says, seeming to be from us. I mean, so this is literally, they have to watch out for forgeries. Okay, they're on the lookout for uh, a forgery in the name of Paul. Apparently this was fairly frequent in those days. There was a a lot less ways to check um, the veracity of who something was from. And so Paul says to be careful. If there's a letter that seems to come from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come, don't believe it. It would have contradicted what he had already taught them. And what he had taught them was the day of the Lord had not come yet. And that's what he's going to expand upon in verses 3 and 4. But notice Paul's pastoral heart that, they, that he's not just concerned about facts. Right? Get your facts straight. Paul doesn't say that. Paul's concerned about their minds. In Romans 12, he said that we need to have a continual renewing of our minds. That's what is at play here. And so I would just, just ask you to, to consider how you guard yourself, how you can be not quickly shaken or alarmed in theology, perhaps even in the news or opinion sources. Be careful what sources you are listening to. Be, guard your ears as you hear these things. I would highly recommend in uh, the news, theology, opinion, um, uh, genre, uh, World Magazine and its derivatives online. Um, I have been a subscriber to World for more than a decade, and they are believers um, that apply journalistic principles incredibly well, and I would commend that to your consideration, World Magazine and their website and their podcast. Um, as we listen to speakers in our day, the doors have been blown open. Um, and so you can go on YouTube, you can go on a podcast, and you can listen to pastors and teachers from all over the globe teaching everything you could think of in the Bible and about the Bible. Be careful. Um, ask others, ask leaders in this church, ask those you trust uh, who know the Bible whether or not this teacher is worth listening to. Compare notes. Let's together as a community help one another listen to good sources. Paul warns the Thessalonians, be careful what you're listening to. Or, as I also learned as a young one, be careful little ears what you hear. Okay? Be careful little ears what you hear. Um, the, the caution comes at the beginning. Paul leads with pastoral comfort. Paul leads with care and then dives into the details. And some of us need to take that to heart. Some of us are details, facts-oriented, and our uh, way of arguing is just to pound somebody into submission. Um, No doubt Paul could have done that. (laughs) Um, But Paul rarely leads with facts, figures. He, He almost always begins with thankfulness, with love, and with care. And that is a good uh, model for us. In verses 3 and 4, Paul points out that we are not to be deceived about the day of the Lord. Don't be deceived 
about the day of the Lord. Verse 3 may, depending on what version you have, it may come across as a less than an imperative. Let no one deceive you in any way. That's not how it is. It's let no one deceive you in any way. It's an imperative. It is a command. So the, the idea is if you hear that, then your responsibility is to work to not be deceived. Okay? Uh, passivity leads to uh, compromise and deception. We must actively be working against being deceived. In fact, one of the requirements of an elder, of an overseer, of a pastor, is to be able to defend the faith. To be able to discern different teachings and, and to line up those with the scriptures and to reject those that don't line up, not only for their own souls, but for the souls of the sheep within their care. So pray for your elders as that is one of their responsibilities. Let no one deceive you in any way, he adds. In any way. That means we must be on our guard. Now listen, that automatically brings to some of you, I don't like reading. <laughs> okay, I'm not that kind of person. You're starting to talk about which personality you are. Paul does not give any outs here. But I do not think that Paul would just think that everyone would do this in the same way. Okay? So you have your strengths. You have the, thing, the ways that you learn. Employ those and don't be deceived. Rely on others. Be humble. Rely on others to help you not be deceived um, in your own ways. Now listen, if you say, I don't like to read, um, I have some alternative ways, okay, of allowing yourself not to be deceived. So don't use that as your out, right? Now on the other hand, if you're uh, like me, you need to be careful that you don't push that on other people. Well, I've got 17 books you should read, <laughs> okay? Don't be compassion and care don't push that on other people okay maybe give them one recommendation that isn't 700 pages long at first work their way up okay don't be deceived in any way at at this juncture paul now moves into the details and he begins to teach so that the people of god may know how not to be deceived there's two warnings here that that help the thessalonian church Thessalonian church was being confronted with the idea that perhaps the day of the Lord had already come. Okay? And so um, we, we assume there were probably some Jewish people involved in the church there in Thessalonica, and so they would have had a, a much better understanding of the Old Testament than, than probably any of the Gentiles there, if the Gentiles had any. But what Paul begins to move into here is a deeply Jewish argument. Because he is going to reference and infer and imply many, many things that started back in the Old Testament times, in the Old Covenant. So um, the, the way to really study this passage and what the depth that it requires is you've got to read the book of Daniel, specifically chapters 9, 11, and 12. And you read Daniel 9, 11, and 12 before you go to bed and you're going to have some weird dreams. Actually, I guess that applies to almost all of Daniel, so never mind. <laughs> uh, Daniel 9, especially the end of the chapter, and then generally the last half of chapter 11 and then all of chapter 12 are certainly being relied upon in what Paul understands to be the end times. Not only that, but we must read Matthew chapter 24, which is Jesus' sermon on the Mount of Olives overlooking the temple. His, his disciples ask what his return is going to be, what are the signs, and Jesus goes into some, some detail. So Matthew 24 would also be incredibly important. And then in order to synthesize all of the different things that the Bible represents, we have to read the book of Revelation because there are so many parallels here. Um, 
Revelation was written by the Apostle John. Okay, John and Paul, um, uh, we assume, knew each other because of various things we read about in the book of Acts. Um, and, and so they are coming at this, obviously, from very different things, decades apart, most likely. But as they begin to teach, you can see, oh, wait, that sounds a lot like this. And that sounds a lot like what Daniel said. And so we begin to weave these things together. Not perfectly, because there's a lot that we don't understand. But, but we have so much background here from those books. So once again, Daniel chapter 9, chapter 11, chapter 12, Matthew, chapter 24, Revelation, um, specifically starting in, verse, in chapter 13, where we have the beasts. Um, and so that's important for, for you to know. The different views that we take on the end times, Pastor Ron outlined several weeks ago, again, podcast, website, go back and look at those things. Um, but we, our church um, believes in uh, a pre-millennialism, um, and the millennium is in a thousand-year reign of Christ, referenced in Revelation chapter 20. And we believe that Jesus is coming back prior to that millennium. Further, we also believe that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, um, the, 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 a thing called the rapture is described, which Jesus will come into the clouds and receive those who believe in him, both those who are alive and those who are dead in the ground. We believe that be, the, that event kicks off what is described in Daniel and Matthew and Revelation and in a few other places um, of what some people call the tribulation or the great tribulation. Now, if, you, if, you, if that turns you off to understanding that, please let me challenge you. The first is scripture. <laughs> okay? So, so dig and work hard. And don't be discouraged when you're like, what in the world am I reading about a beast from the sea and all these heads on a dragon? Okay? Get some sources. Figure those things out. Start to work on those kinds of things. But we believe that the day of the Lord is certainly a day in the future. And we also believe that it describes a time beyond a day. Okay, so the day of the Lord seems to be like a sequence of events. The day of the Lord, as described in the Old Testament prophets, was the coming of judgment. And that that would come... In various ways. Now, Pastor Ron has used this analogy a bunch of times. So many of you who have been here for years have, have seen it. We've shown pictures of mountains. And from a distance, wow, there's the mountains. And the closer you get to the mountains, the more you begin to see the details. Oh, wow, there's actually ranges of these mountains. And so what I saw from afar that looked to be a 2D mountain, as I get closer, now we're in depth. 3D mountain ranges some that are close and some that are still further away. For those of you that on the young adult camping trip last summer when we did that hike near the crevices at Mono Lake, hey, we're at the top and you get to the top and the top ain't the top because <laughs> now there's another top. And when you got to that top, there was one last top after that, right? So this is kind of what happens as we look into prophecy. We believe that, uh, that the revelation of God to his people has been progressive so that God told Adam and Eve these things and that Noah knew these things. And that Abraham knew these things. And that Moses knew these things. And as we get more and more revelation from God, now we have more to put together, right? And we are blessed because we have it preserved for us in the Holy Word of God. um, That God, through his uh, just providence, has kept alive for us all these years. That being said, Paul gives them two reasons why they are not in the day of the Lord, that they're not living in the day of the Lord, that the day of the Lord has not come yet. And what is that? The rebellion that comes first in verse 3 and the man of lawlessness being revealed. 
Just to keep it simple, those two things are the two things that Paul chooses to say, this is how you can know you're not living in the day of the Lord. Briefly, what are these things? The rebellion in the English Standard Version is also, it comes from the word basically apostasy. To apostatize is, to, is a religious term. To believe in one thing, to hold to these things, and then to turn away from that. So someone who apostatizes are like some of these, unfortunately, famous Christians who recently have rejected their faith. Right? They have apostatized and rejected that faith. And so this seems to be, um, this has happened all throughout Scripture and all throughout church history, but this seems to be a, 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 a the rebellion. There's something about it that is um, revolutionary, that is earth-shaking, that there is, is an apostasy, a rebellion to come. What could that be? This is the first time I'm going to ask that, and in the next 15 minutes I'm going to ask it a bunch more times. What could that be? Yeah. <laughs> um, it could be something that has to do with apostasy and rebellion. Could it be a, a massive um, evacuating of the church, of people that have said to be Christians all along? Um, could it be um, a, a cult that comes out of the true church um, that has obviously happened throughout history? Perhaps that is coming. But he says the rebellion must come first. The second thing is this description of the man of lawlessness, or if you have certain versions of the Bible, the man of sin. Lawlessness is a better word. Um, it, it's it's the, the lack of law. Um, it is the absence of law. And this man of lawlessness, he's also called the son of destruction, which is a very similar term to what Judas Iscariot was called, must come first. Who is this man? Verse 4, he opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. And so when we're looking for, and the characteristic of this, of, of this person would be someone who has elevated themselves against every so-called God or object of worship, not merely Christianity. Why? So that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. This is what the man of lawlessness will do. And Paul's point is, this man has not come. Now, church history has wanted to see this man in lots of places. So the man of lawlessness, as we'll see, is very closely related to the beast um, uh, that comes out of the earth in Revelation chapter 13, to um, the or an antichrist. Um, it's probably the term that we know the best. Um, and maybe the prince or the king of the north in the book of Daniel. All of these terms describe seemingly this one person who is going to elevate himself. Now, he's going to take his seat in the temple of God. There is... Sir, Clearly now, no temple in Jerusalem. The Dome of the Rock sits where the temple of God once stood. And the New Testament teaches that we are the temple of God, the church. And so there is debate about what this means. What does it mean? Does he literally take a literal seat in the literal temple of God? Likely that the temple will be rebuilt. That's often how we interpret Ezekiel 40 through 48. Um, Perhaps the temple will be rebuilt. That That is a likely scenario. And that this man of lawlessness will seat himself in the temple of God. This is likely also because it has been foreshadowed. It's been done before. It's been done before. Antiochus Epiphanes, the fourth back in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, actually did go into the Holy of Holies. He corrupted it. He offered up a pig on the altar in 63 B.C., And then, I'm sorry, he did that. And then Pompey, the Roman general, also entered the Holy of Holies in 63 BC um, to to prove he was powerful. The emperor Caligula, about 10 years after Jesus died, tried to set up statues of himself in the temple. Didn't go so well. 
for him. There was some opposition to that and he backed down. But this has been attempted by evil men who have been wanting to subvert this weird belief that few have believed in the world, in world history that there is one God. The Jews and then the Christians. This one God thing has really ticked off a lot of people and they have attempted to go against this. Um, you, you see this man of lawlessness, whatever the case, if there's a literal temple or not, he is elevating himself to the level of God, which sounds a whole lot like the descriptions in Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28 of one who seems to be Satan or at least satanic. Now, we move into verses 5 through 10, and we see that we need to remember the truth, love the truth, and I say this very purposely, get on the right side of history. Maybe you've heard that term in the last decade, to get on the right side of history with um, whatever it is, uh, whatever ism is being referred to, that we ought to get on the right side of history. Um, the, the problem is that's one of the most arrogant things you could say if you don't have a reliable source to say it, because throughout human history, um, persecuting Jews and calling them uh, lesser than humans was on the right side of German history. Um, calling uh, people with black-colored skin that they are less than human is not only a part of history in general, but the history of our own constitution. Um, we have we have in our history been really, really confident that we know what the right side of history is. We only know the right side of history when we know the author of history. And so I say that very purposely in this point, that we need to remember the truth, love the truth, and get on the right side of history because God knows what's coming and he's telling us. Therefore, we can line ourselves up with what God says and know that we will be eventually on the right side of history. Now, we, we, things that we desire, positions that we want to see, policies that we want to see enacted may not go our way. They have not in several key ways in the past few weeks in this country. But we know that we will be on the right side of history if we are with the author of history because he will end history and we, as we know from this passage, will be gathered to him. So, verse 5, Paul just reminds them, I told you this before, and the key, the key application here is if you've heard it, it's your responsibility to keep it in your trap. <laughs> keep it up here. Keep it in there. Re- renew your mind. Review. If you learned something when you were 24, you, you likely ha- do not remember it with clarity. Learn it again. Keep learning it. Renew your mind. Sharpen yourself so that you might understand the scriptures and you might understand the times. Verse 6. Now, this is where it gets a little difficult because the Thessalonians know what Paul is talking about and we don't. Because he says, and you know... What is restraining him? Him being the man of lawlessness. And this restraint picture is one to hold back or to keep in check. Um, If you keep someone from leaving your house, you are restraining them. Correct? And so the idea is that there is someone restraining the man of lawlessness. Now, this does not mean that the man of lawlessness has been alive for 2,000 years and is in some kind of like weird pyramid underground and like makes for a really good action adventure movie. Okay? The point is, later on, we're going to see the mystery of lawlessness we're going to see that that there is a restrainer keeping this lawless one or this lawlessness from being loosed on the world. What is restraining him so that he may be revealed in his time, which again shows that God is in control because this is all timed out. The man of lawlessness doesn't get to decide when. God allows him to come when it's his time. Okay? 
what is restraining? For the mystery of lawlessness, verse 7, is already at work. So, so the, the lawlessness, the, the, the rebellion against God, the apostasy, we've seen snippets of it here and there. It's been around forever. And what we understand by the rebellion, the apostasy coming, and the man of lawlessness, is that there's going to be an ultimate time of this happening in the end. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. This is difficult. So in verse 6, there is a what restraining. And in verse 7, there is a he. And I, I found in my resources nine different ideas about the restrainer. I will not read them all to you right now. I tend to think that the restraint is something or some mix of or some specific understanding of the power of God specifically through the Holy Spirit, and possibly the presence of the church. That is what is restraining the apostasy, the the rebellion. So this may be understood as worldwide evangelization, and so that when the rapture comes and Jesus brings all his people home, that there may be uh, an apostasy because there are no Christians left. There's no church. Um, This may be the Holy Spirit, and I lean particularly towards that because the Holy Spirit is described in the New Testament with both n- neuter nouns and masculine nouns. Okay, By neuter, it means neither masculine or feminine because the word for Holy Spirit is the same word for wind or breath. And so because there is a neuter, what, in verse 6, and a masculine, he, in verse 7, that would line up with how the Holy Spirit is described in the Scriptures. Whatever the case, this restraint is happening, and Paul says you should know this because I taught it to you. In verse 8, he says, then the lawless one will be revealed. (laughs) Just in time for whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So this is good news and there's immediate comfort. This man of lawlessness is coming. And this this drives me nuts when people freak out about who the Antichrist is or was or is going to be. And it's like, oh my gosh, the mark of the beast and there's chips in our... Those people, I don't think, are actively reading the scriptures. Because the Bible says, here comes the man of lawlessness. Bam! He's dead. Jesus kills him. Okay? So, like, Jesus is in control. It's okay. This is described in Revelation 19. Jesus comes and it says, a sword from his mouth. And I think that's that's symbolism for God's... The word of Jesus is all that he needs to kill this man. The man of lawlessness, this great one. And Jesus goes, I'm here. Bam! He's dead. Okay? So that's... That's the picture of what's happening. I love it. The Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth. That, that, now, that is not referred to bad breath. Okay? That, again, that word breath is the same word for spirit or wind. Okay? It's, it's hard to know exactly how to translate that. But Jesus, all he needs is the... to defeat the lawless one. What he, and he will not only kill him, he will bring to nothing... By the appearance of his coming. This seems to be described in Revelation 19 and 20 with the Antichrist or the beast being thrown into hell. Jesus comes and overpowers him. This is good news. Verse 9, the coming of the lawless one, how are you going to know, is by the activity of Satan. He is satanic. And in Revelation we see this if we line up the beast and this man of lawlessness because um, Satan, the dragon, gives him his power. So the coming of the lost one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. Jesus, Jesus said this in Matthew 24. So there's no surprise here. If we see false wonders, if we, see, if we see wonders and signs, we automatically need to test them and say, 
does this resonate? Is it like Jesus and Paul and Peter's healings? Or is it like satanic power? We need to be discerning of those things. And this is not just the lawless one who is coming, but his predecessors. First uh, John says there are antichrists in the world now. So it's like there's antichrists and then will come the antichrist. And so these antichrists have been around forever. And unfortunately, many of them are in America and they, they parade around preaching a prosperity, health, and wealth gospel. Meanwhile, the people that believe that gospel are headed to hell because it is not a true gospel. Don't listen to that junk. We are not, we are not here on earth to be healthy, wealthy, rich. If that happens, bless the Lord and bless others with your riches. But what we're promised is life eternal and the presence of God with us through suffering, which may include poverty. In fact, the, the vast majority of Christians throughout history have been poor. Which, if you listen to these, these prosperity preachers, then all of those Christians had little or weak faith. I beg to differ. Those Christians had their heads chopped off and preached Jesus until their head was off their shoulders. Not living in, on yachts and in the presidential suites at some hotel in Italy. What a bunch of ridiculousness that is not Christianity. Jesus did not come to make you wealthy. He might, but that is not why he came. Whew. All right. So, verse 10. <laughs> verse 10. How does, how does the, the lawless one come? With Satan's power and then also wicked deception. He comes as a liar. Satan's been a liar from the beginning. Did God really say... That is the temptation, that is your temptation, that is the temptation that started with Eve. Did God really say? Which, how do you, how do you counter that? Know what God said. You must know what God said in order to counter that. It comes with wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. We must love the truth. Paul goes so far as to say lovers of the truth are saved. Now, this is not Sherlock Holmes investigating, finding truth. This is the truth. In fact, the truth is embodied. Jesus said he was the way, the truth, and the life. So to love the truth is to love the truth of God, who is true. Now, they refuse to love the truth. Notice this. These people are morally corrupt, like all of us were before Jesus saved us. Like maybe some of you are today because you have not yet been saved. So, so this is not some kind of weird like um, sorting of people ahead of time and this robots, I am on the saved line. I am on the unsaved line. That's not what's happening here. These are morally corrupt people saying, I reject the truth. I hate the truth, in fact. Now, last point. Believe the truth and escape God's condemnation. Believe the truth and escape God's condemnation. Verses 11 and 12, notice how Paul ends. Therefore, having said all that, therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. Now this might trouble you. I think it's okay to be troubled on first reading. This doesn't sound like what God does. God is sending a strong delusion. Notice the order. What happened in verse 10? They hated the truth. They hated the truth. And so, God, in response, I think I can add this word, maybe we can have a conversation afterwards, sometimes sends a strong delusion 
that they may believe what is false. This is Romans 1 language. God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. God, by the way, is the potter and we are the clay. What right does the clay have to say to the potter, I'm not really excited about my shape. The potter says, why are you talking? You're clay. This is how I made you. God acts in ways that are consistent with his character and part, not part, God is righteous, which means God must judge. He can't sweep things under the rug. He can't, he can't say, I control the universe, but man, I can't do anything about that. That's too bad. Let's pretend it's not there. God doesn't do that. He must judge. In verse 12, in order that, this is why the delusion was sent, that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth. Listen, if you don't believe the truth, you should be condemned. Okay? That's repugnant to our culture. But it is absolutely true. If you are, if you are not believing the truth, you are believing a lie and you deserve condemnation because it is not just some kind of neutral observance of facts. It is a moral corruption that leads to rejecting the truth. When the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders reject Jesus, they are not merely balancing the facts and say, we disagree with you, Jesus. They said, we hate you and what you're teaching, therefore you must die. Do you see that? They're morally corrupt. Friends, you and I came out, of, we were in our mother's womb and we were already corrupt because of Adam's sin. And it didn't take long for that to be manifested. Right? Nursery workers... Look at these little angels slapping each other and throwing things and, right? (laughs) Oh, they're just babies. Well, you tell me when the line is crossed and I will argue that it's sooner, okay? (laughs) You and I were morally corrupt. The only way to escape corruption is to believe the truth. And also this last phrase, they not only didn't believe the truth, but they had pleasure in unrighteousness. See, this is the moral corruption. It's not just a, a neutral observation of facts. It is a hatred of truth. It is pleasure and unrighteousness. It's almost like I know that's right, but I like this more. Which is what we do when we sin. Especially the more we know. Because the more we know, the more we know we shouldn't do it. And then we do it anyway, and it is a spitting in God's face. It is a moral corruption that comes upon us. So, we must believe the truth and escape God's condemnation. I have good news for you. There is an escape. There is a way out from condemnation. But there is condemnation coming. Do you understand that? There is judgment coming. And there is an escape. Because God sent his only son, Jesus, to live a perfect life that we can't live. To die a death on a cross that we should have died. He's the only one that didn't deserve it. We all deserve death. And yet the only one who didn't did it on our behalf. So, listen, we're so used to crosses that we miss it, right? Oh, that's a nice cross. So this to the youth on Thursday. I like Celtic crosses. Celtic crosses are cool. You're talking about an instrument of death and torture. Okay, we're so used to it, we don't see that. On the cross, on the tree, Jesus is cursed on our behalf so that we never will be. There is therefore now no condemnation 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Jesus took it on himself. Do you remember Abraham? Isaac on the altar, knife raised. Angel says, don't do it, Abraham. Now I know you love me. Jesus is on the altar of the cross and God doesn't stay his hand. There's no stopping what's happening because he loves us. If you're offended by any of this today, can you see through all that? Maybe we can work on that. But can you see that God loves you? I would not give my son for you. I'm not doing it. But God the Father did. He gave his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Lord, we thank you for this passage that though it is difficult and, and we might, we know we will wrestle with it until we know the truth in the end, Lord, that you have given us enough so that we know what to do with this passage. Lord, may we believe the truth and so escape condemnation. And may we tell others how they might escape condemnation by believing the truth. Lord, we can only do that through your Holy Spirit. We can only do that through the word of the gospel that is preached and proclaimed. So help us, Lord, to tell our friends and our neighbors and our family. Thank you, Lord, for saving us. Thank you that we can meet together today. Be with us now in uh, what comes next. And we pray, Lord, that, that we would go this week into our lives with this ringing in our ears, um, that we would not be shaken by any of the news that is sure to come this week. In Jesus' name, amen.